How warm are you at the moment? Whether you're outside in the cold or wrapped up under a blanket or basking on a beach if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, chances are you're maintaining a fairly steady temperature, which is 37 degrees C, right? That was the conclusion of Carl Wunderlich in his magnum opus, The Course of Temperature in Disease. Wunderlich published that in 1868, following his extensive collection of body temperature readings, and 37 degrees stuck. But it's not as simple as that. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and to discuss why we need to re-examine the idea that 37 degrees C is normal body temperature, I talked to Philip Mikoviak, Emeritus Professor of Medicine and now History of Medicine Scholar in Residence at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And importantly, he's someone who's been interested in temperature for a long time. Philip's also written a Christmas editorial for the BMJ called Feel the Heat, a short history of body temperature. Uh, you have... your. A history of medicine scholar, um, and uh, you've you've in this editorial cast your attention on Carl Wunderlich, who is the man who originally came up with the idea for um, average body temperature being thirty seven degrees. Um, I'm just wondering, could you tell us a little bit about Carl? Who was he? Um, what was this man doing at the time, and, and why was he so interested in temperature? Well, uh, Wunderlich, Carl uh, Reinhold August Wunderlich, uh, was a uh, German physician who um, who uh, did his work in the uh, first half of the first two thirds of the 19th century. Um, he he uh, practiced medicine at a time when measuring things was the thing to do, and, and particularly so in Germany, and so that um, physicians and scientists uh, were becoming uh, much more focused on data. And uh, he was not, and, and his particular area of interest was the um, uh, human uh, body temperature. And um, he was an active clinician. Uh, he did this where he was, he, he worked in a number of German cities, but he did this particular work in Leipzig had his own clinic, and in that clinic, uh, temperatures were taken of um, the patients he saw over about a 10-year period, and we're talking about a lot of patients. Uh, it's, it's estimated that he um, he interacted with some 25,000 patients over that time, and uh, his staff took uh, some uh, million temperatures on, um, on those patients, and he um, he was a very thoughtful, scientific uh, person, and he looked at his data, um, at least a portion of it, and um, made some observations and drew some conclusions uh, based on um, based on um, the, the data that uh, he mm -hmm. collected, and that's uh, that's uh, his main claim to fame. Yeah, and. Um and you mentioned this in the editorial, but I think it's probably worth uh, going into a little bit more, which was uh, the equipment that they were using at the time to actually measure temperature. And if you think that this was in the first half of the 19th century, then um, 
you know what the, what they were using there must have been uh, rather different to to modern um, temperature well, the, uh, the, thermometers. Yeah, thank you. The uh, thermometers that uh, Wonderlick apparently used uh, were very different from uh, current day uh, thermometers, but uh, they were also different from uh, apparently uh, from other th- thermometers were, that were being used at his time during his time. So um, several years ago, I was in Philadelphia with uh, one of the grand old men from the University of Maryland, and we were visiting the Mütter Museum uh, in Philadelphia. And um, the uh, chief curator, a woman by the name of Gretchen Warden, uh, was showing us around. And and somehow uh, my interest in um, fever and thermometer thermometry came up and and wonderlick in particular and she said oh well we have one of his thermometers and i said <laughs> oh my heavens um could i see it she says sure would you like to borrow it and uh, i mean i was just totally uh, overwhelmed and so any case uh, we took this thermometer and uh, took it back to uh, baltimore and uh, did some measurements with it, uh, comparing it to a uh, current uh, standard thermometer and also uh, thermometers of that era, and uh, found some interesting things uh, uh, relative to this thermometer. Uh, first of all, it, uh, it was huge, and this is the one he used on his patients. It was about 10 inches long, um, mercury and glass, um, uh, we subsequently learned that the temperatures he took were temperatures uh, taken from the armpit or the axilla. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, uh, the, this was a non-registering thermometer. That is, uh, it went up and down with the temperature. It wasn't uh, like our old mercury and glass thermometers where it would rise to the highest level and you'd have to shake it down to start all over again. This one would just go up and down depending on the temperature, so it had to be read while it was still in the axilla, uh, which made it difficult. Um, uh, But most importantly, when we compared the uh, results uh, obtained with this thermometer from those with a with a modern uh, thermometer, um, the readings were anywhere from 1.5 to 2.2 degrees centigrade higher than current thermometers. And this was interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, um, you wonder about 98.6 or 37 uh, degrees centigrade as the average temperature that he came up with in his patient population. Uh, particularly uh, because um, that particular number is closer to oral temperatures, which tend to be higher than Mm -hmm. axillary temperatures today. And the uh, difference in the calibration of thermometers would explain why the results he got uh, measuring axillary temperatures were more comparable to today's oral temperatures. (laughs) So it's quite serendipitous for for him, I suppose, then. I mean, you mentioned there uh, a little bit earlier that um, the clinic he was working in, his staff took measures on a million people. Is that right? No, no. The uh, the estimate is, and we don't know, we don't have the exact numbers, but it's estimated that there were twenty five thousand uh, subjects, patients, uh, either walking well or ill, um, that he took uh, 
temperatures on, and, and uh, the number of measurements reached about a million. Right. Sorry. Um, I mean, that's an enormous amount of data oh, yeah, that, that they were looking that time. at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and presumably working out on, you know, uh, with parchment and ink in the uh, in the way that they would have had to then. <laughs> yes. um, uh-huh. How did, do you have any idea about how he actually analyzed that, that enormous data set? No, I don't. I don't think anybody uh, has any way of knowing uh, because... He, he wrote this wonderful book, Das Verhalten, uh, etc., The uh, Course of Temperature and Disease, uh, where he goes um, to great length in discussing his observations and his conclusions, one of which was that when the, um, the, the human body is in the normal state, uh, the temperature is 37 degrees centigrade, um, but uh, includes no description of how he uh, what data he chose from this massive uh, data set, uh, much less uh, give even um, modest uh, samples uh, of those data. Um, and he did not have access to, um, uh, obviously, computer technology or, as far as we know, uh, statistical concepts. So how he actually uh, arrived at his conclusions, the calculations he used, uh, is unknown, but yet it stands that he has this 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 huge data set. Yeah. Um, now, when he did that, he didn't just come up with the idea that thirty seven degrees um, was average body temperature, and that was it. I mean, he did note some variation between men and women, Absolutely. between um, day and night. Yet, thirty seven degrees is still there as uh, held up as as the idea of 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 what our temperature is so um I'm just wondering do you have an idea about why given that he expressed you know noted that variation given all the things that we know now, why is it that 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 single data point thirty seven degrees has been so persistent yeah exactly yeah. well uh first of all um I, I suspect that if he were alive today and um, and uh, discovered that uh, sort of the general public uh, had focused on uh, 37 degrees centigrade as the normal temperature, he would be shocked because, as you just pointed out, um, he knew that there was uh, diurnal variation in temperature. He knew... Um, I suspect, and I don't know this for certain, that different uh, areas of the body would give you different temperatures. Um, he knew that uh, women had uh, slightly higher temperatures than men, etc. But in any case, that being said, why would the public latch on to 37 degrees centigrade as the normal temperature, and why would it persist uh, for so long? Um, well, I think there there's several possible explanations. One is that um, that number was derived from a huge database, uh, data set. Um, and as, as you already mentioned, that had a, uh, an inhibitory effect on others who might have uh, wanted to challenge um, Wunderlich's observations or conclusions. Um, the, the results he obtained, though imprecise and variable, um, as it turned, and, and uh, were taken from the axilla rather than from the um, 
the mouth where temperatures are normally taken today, we're close enough to what we see today to be reasonable. So um, close enough to be acceptable. The other important thing to recognize with Wunderlich is he was amazing. He was an amazing writer. His his um, his book is eloquent um, and. If you'd like, I could give you one of his quotes that would demonstrate that. Um, Please do. All right. Well, here, just just consider this one. He said the following, and not not, uh, necessarily related to temperature, but it gives you an idea of the kind of writer he was. He says, if the physician should sometimes suffer from injustice and misunderstanding, should his honest work be now and then ignored or even sneered at, he must bear in mind that in the majestic eye of nature, the individual is nothing, and however depressed he may feel when intriguers and mountbanks blow about their ephemeral successes, he may be sure that these upstarts will be overtaken in the end by the ironies of conscience. For natural science is a proud silence advancing power. I mean, this is this was this was uh, his style, and um, I think that style uh, helped to win over uh, people along with this massive data set. But I think probably the most important thing is um, people want yes and no answers. You know, for instance, the question is, um, is fever good or bad for you? And it's a very complicated question, and there are all sorts of yes, ifs, and buts. Uh, but that's not what people want. They want to know, is, what's the answer? Is it yes or no? And uh, the idea that you could focus on a single temperature rather than a range of temperatures that varies depending on time of day, time of year, um, uh, gender of the patient, um, uh, was just less appealing than a single temperature that you could say, okay, if the person is at rest, um, it should be such and such. And then we put the little red mark on the thermometer, and that's what we hope we find mm, when we take the temperature. Mm, mm. An easy answer. Um, the quote that you've you've just read out sort of shows that Wunderlich as a man had this um, this good grasp of rhetoric, uh, yeah, yeah. and that that helped him win his his answer. And I think that sort of talks to um, something that I worry about uh, when we're moving into an era of big data. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, Wunderlich's the the size of his his data set sort of speaks to this as well. That I don't know. I suppose we're moving into an idea that um, that volume lends authority. The bigger your data set, the bigger a study is, uh, the more true it is. Mm. Um, and we well know put. that is well put. Uh, well, we know that's not true, though. I mean, statistical analysis has to come in. The data is only ever as good as as that which is collected. And in the era of big data, often people are using um, data in a secondary way, so it's not you know collected for the purpose of 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 why they're looking at it. Um, is that something you worry about too? Oh, a whole lot, a whole lot. It's, it's the difference between perception and reality, and. Uh, the perception, the idea that just because a data set is large, all the uh, unmeasured variables that are interacting with these measurements that you made, uh, making interpretation of the um, 
uh, the, the data set nearly impossible. Um, the idea that all those unmeasured variables will go away if your data set is just large enough uh, is wishful thinking as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in a way with this one, we, we've forgotten about some basic things like um, normal distribution, for example, the fact that obviously people are sort of clustered around that point, but not everyone will be sitting in it and especially over, you know, over time as well. So um, I was just wondering from, from your point of view, looking at history, um, having had a, a, a career as a, as a clinician, um, do you think uh, we've forgotten normal distribution elsewhere? Well, um, I don't think we've forgotten it. I, I, I think that uh, clinicians have always had a problem remembering the importance of normal distribution. And uh, the current um, uh, preoccupation with evidence-based medicine, evidence in quotation-based medicine, um, is a case in point because it's a misnomer. Um, uh, evidence implies truth. And the, quote, evidence um, that we obtained from clinical studies, such as this one we're talking about, are actually averages. And um, a better uh, name for evidence-based medicine would be average-based medicine because it would force everyone, including physicians, to realize that um, all uh, observations on data, whether small or large sets, need to be customized when you're dealing with the individual patient. And this is reflected, among other things, in, in Obermeyer's study of the difference between men and women, um, the effect of uh, age on the uh, average uh, body temperature, um, things like that. Mm. Mm, absolutely. And uh, I like that, the coining the phrase of uh, average-based medicine yeah. would be uh, would be good as well. Um, now, obviously, uh, the, the, the reason you've written your editorial is because there is a, another study um, using big data uh, which has, has examined... Um, body temperature and, and related it to mortality, mm-hmm. uh, which is the, the subject of another podcast that we're doing. Um, but I just wondered, uh, again, with your perspective um, on the history of medicine, uh, do you have any other, uh, you know, where would you like people to, to look next? Um, temperature kind of ticked off, uh, where, where now? Yeah, well, um, I, I don't have any... Um I don't have any great ideas along those lines, but what I would suggest um, was that um, one of the most interesting aspects of um, this analysis by Obermeyer and colleagues is the fact that um, uh, their data, their huge data set, um, basically confirmed observations that were made by Wunderlich, what, 150 years ago. And... um, I would suggest that there is a lot to learn um, from history uh, in general and the history of medicine in particular. Um, It teaches you um, that um, uh, the the thinking and the uh, actions of our forefathers were not necessarily as trite or misdirected as we we tend to believe as we become increasingly uh, technological. 
um, and that um, uh, what we know today is not only based on uh, what uh, was given to us by our forebearers, but also um, will potentially be looked upon with a similar disdain by future generations. So it, <laughs> it, it teaches us humility, um, and the study of history uh, teaches us the limitation, not uh, the origins, but also the limitation of the um, information that we use to direct our lives today. That's a, that's a nice point to end this on. Um, Philip, thank you very much for, for talking to us and for writing that editorial, which is fascinating. Uh, people should go and have a look online. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you, Duncan. My pleasure. You've been listening to Philip Mikoviak give us a short history of body temperature, which is now on bmj.com and in your Christmas edition, out on Friday. Before we finish it's time to remind you that Christmas is a time of giving. And this year's Christmas appeal is for MSF. In previous years, the BMJ's readers have been very generous to help our charities, and we urge you to do that again. Here's Javed Abdelmanim, Emergency Medicine Doctor and Chair of MSF UK, to explain why BMJ's chosen MSF this year and why you should donate. Well, MSF was involved from the very beginning of this Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Uh, and it was, in fact, uh, it was through an MSF laboratory that the blood sampling was tested and, 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 and diagnosed with Ebola. From that very moment uh, of, di- of the diagnosis having been made, uh, MSF put about, set about making a, um, reacting to it with, with containment teams and, and treatment centers. And we can we can react in, and we do. We mandate ourselves to react in um, uh, in uh, natural disaster, in in disease epidemic, in conflict settings, and in areas where there's health imbalance. You know, we were the first to bring out antiretroviral drugs for HIV in Southern Africa. Um, we, you know, way back when, you know, two, three decades ago, we in, in Palicia in South Africa, you know, and we, we continue that sort of trailblazing now by trialing MDR, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis drugs, bringing it out for the first time, the compassionate use of bedequilin in Armenia three years ago and helping form the new World Health Guidelines for, for tuberculosis and drug resistant tuberculosis last year. So, you know, that could be, a, you know, HIV, TB, you know, you know, disease burdens of exclusion or inequity or imbalance. But then look at the Haiti earthquake. You know, what a huge response we, 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 we made then. Or look at Ebola, what a huge response we made then. Or look at Syria and Yemen, where we're working now. We really are, you know, unique in the sense of being able to do all those different complex things at the same time. There's, there's no point us having logisticians and, and, and medics doing things and advocacy campaigns and, and, and petitions if, you know, we, we can't do any of that without having money. So I don't want to sound crass, but, you know, at the end of the day, if we, if we didn't have money, we wouldn't be able to do any of this. And that's why we do do, do appeals, you know, we, and we won't be shy in saying, give us as much as you can, because, do you know what, we do a very good job. And if I don't say so myself, and we'd like to continue doing such a good job because more often than not, we'll be the only people there giving that care, you know, in, in the north of Yemen, in, in the backwaters of South Sudan, 
in in other forgotten places. You know, Uganda took in a million South Sudanese refugees. Their millionth refugee cost went into Sudan, from South Sudan into Uganda this year. Was that even in the headlines? Who's working there? Who's helping Uganda? Well, you can bet your bottom dollar and pound and euro that MSF is there. You know, and and again for the for, for Rohingya in Myanmar and so forth. So, no, I, I'll I'll gladly say if you, if you if you feel like helping and you can't in any other way than giving a pound, would gladly receive it. The easiest way to donate is online. MSF.org.uk/bmj. One hundred and twenty-three pounds could pay for a blood transfusion for three people. 65 could buy a stretcher to help move an injured person to safety and £54 could provide the antibiotics needed to treat 50 war-wounded people. That's all for this episode. We'll be back tomorrow with a little bit more history and an analysis of our drinking vessels. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out on that. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.